Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. Today's going to be a little bit different. We're going to feature two interviews that I did on the subject of the gospel of the kingdom and the insurgents. And next week, we will be back to the normal rhythm where John and I will talk about various issues related to the gospel of the kingdom. Today, I am hosting or interviewing Frank Viola author of many books, but his newest book is Insurgents. So we're going to talk a little bit about his book and discuss a few texts, one of which is Matthew eleven twelve, where uh, we read, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. Is Jesus saying there that if you want to expand or spread the kingdom of God on earth, that you need to use violence and force any means necessary, right, to get people to, what, change their life, believe in Jesus, spread the gospel, go to church, you know, whatever you understand by the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Well, that's what we discuss. That's what Frank Viola and I discussed today, along with many other concepts. And I need to tell you, as he and I had this discussion, I pre-recorded it, uh, I, there were many times when I got chills and goosebumps based on what he was saying. I think he has some insights here, which are not only going to help you understand Scripture and numerous passages from Scripture, but more importantly, are going to change your life, set you free from some of the things going on in this world, and also maybe help you understand some of the the violence and calls for violence and just the, the separation and division that is occurring within Christianity today over some of the political and economic and racial things that are happening in our country and around the world. So I would strongly encourage you to listen to this podcast episode. So I'm joined by Frank Viola today, and we're going to be discussing his book, Insurgents, Reclaiming Gospel of the Kingdom. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to be on, Jeremy. Awesome. What is the insurgents? You titled it Insurgents, and then the subtitle, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. I'm curious about that, just the title, where that comes from, what it means, and uh, you know how that helps us understand the gospel of the kingdom. Basically, in the New Testament, and I bring this out in the book, I show exactly where it is in the New Testament, but Jesus Christ was called an insurgent. And insurgence has to do with a revolution. In this case, the gospel of the kingdom produces an insurgence. It did in the first century. It literally shook the Roman Empire to its core. And got the apostles in hot water, (laughs) as well as getting Jesus himself killed. And so we're talking about something that is bigger than simply a message, a doctrine, an idea, a philosophy. We're talking about a revolution. What is so interesting to me in the timing of this book, I think is integral on this, is that 
in July of 2017, last year, I held a conference where I uncorked the gospel of the kingdom. And we spent three days together. And what was amazing about it is after I gave those messages, Early on in the conference, there were spontaneous baptisms. People wanted to be baptized, knowing what baptism meant for the first time. Baptism is not just an outward ritual to depict an inward experience. It is a breaking of the loyalty oath to fallen human civilization to the world system. And it is a, a complete breaking of the ties that we have to the world system and an entering into a new civilization, which Jesus called the kingdom of God. And it's a very powerful thing. And so we had spontaneous baptisms after the messages. I didn't even ask for it. I didn't even give an invitation <laughs> to it. Uh, it was incredible. And I mark that day, that weekend is when, at least in my experience from what I see, and I travel quite a bit is when the insurgents began in the United States. Of course, it began a lot longer beforehand in the first century, but we're seeing, I believe, Jeremy, a restoration, a recovery of the gospel of the kingdom in its explosive titanic power. And based on the responses I'm getting so far from the book, anywhere from people who are in their 80s all the way to high school students, believe it or not, and leaders of campus organizations and college students, It is hitting a nerve. It is striking at something in the hearts of God's people that has been neglected. Just to give you just one example of what I'm talking about, which is quite amazing, really. I received an email from a gentleman who is a leader in a movement And the guy is 83 years old. And by the way, that's not the typical audience. Typical audience of this book is 20s, 30s, and 40s. But anyway, he says, I have written about 50 books. I've read hundreds, maybe thousands of my 83 years. Insurgents is the one book you must read. It is everything I believe said much better than I'm graced to say. He says, your efforts will be unfruitful apart from the kingdom foundation Clearly laid out in Frank Viola's new book, during the entire time of reading this book, my spirit has been vibrating like a tuning fork that has just been struck. This came out of the blue, Jeremy. I had no I know who this guy is. I mean, he has a lot of stature in the Christian world. Many people have compared this book, Jeremy, Insurgents to Pagan Christianity that I put out with George Barna 10 years ago, in this way that what pagan Christianity did was it deconstructed our understanding of church, where this book, Insurgents, deconstructs many modern understandings of the kingdom, but what pagan Christianity did not do, it intentionally did not offer solutions. The books that followed pagan Christianity did that. In Insurgents, you have the solutions, you have the remedies, you have the suggested exercises, and what I believe to be the antidotes in the book itself. So Hmm. that's what sets it apart. Yeah, pagan Christianity was super influential in me and my journey away from sort of institutional church and where I'm at now. Uh, But you mentioned um, baptism and sort of what it really means, dying uh, to—what did you say? Uh, Dying to sort of the world system or or the the, the way the world is running, the principalities and powers, that sort of concept. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, it is total severing of all ties, all allegiances— 
to the world system. Now, when we talk about the world system, it's interesting to me because I have found that in the Christian world today, many, many believers have no idea what the world system is, and yet it's all over the New Testament. You know, Jesus said of Satan, he is the prince of this world. John over and over again says things like, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. Now, he's not talking about the earth, and he's not talking about the people human beings who are part of the world. He's talking about a system. And Paul says that Satan is the god of this world in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about the world system. And the world system is essentially fallen human civilization that was built after the fall as a counterfeit to the Garden of Eden where God's presence was. And so people look for enjoyment, security, provision in the world system. And the world system has many other systems to it. The entertainment system is part of the world system. The educational system. The political system. Mm. That's a big one. Mm. (laughs) Uh, And even, Jeremy, the Babylonian religious system are all part of the world system. And so when the early Christians came to Jesus Christ and they were baptized, they were radicalized. I'm going to use that term. They were radicalized to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. They still lived in the world. They were still part of the world, but they were no longer of or from the world. And they did not entangle themselves in the world system. They had a totally different civilization now in which they lived with other people who were under the headship of Christ. And it was a totally different way of living. And when people in the first century, Jeremy, looked at these groups, these clusters of of Jesus followers, and they looked at their life together, what did they see? They saw what it means for God himself in the person of Jesus Christ to be king. What did that look like? And it looked like mutual submission, loving and caring for one another, even though they were of different races. Hmm. You know, the Jew and the Gentile were actually part of one family now, which was unheard of and unthinkable. They saw what justice, true justice looks like. They saw what true forgiveness looks like. They saw what racial unity looks like, what ethnic unity looks like. They peered into that group of believers and they looked at their life together and they said, aha, this is what the kingdom of God is. And the ecclesia in the first century was a colony of heaven lived out on this planet. That's a lot of what the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom produces when we rightly respond to it. And I talk very practically about that. Hmm. All right. So you mentioned a little bit little bit ago politics, and then you brought up racial differences and economic differences, all the things that are in the news and, and the whole yeah. political sphere today. So I'm going to give <laughs> all right, so I'm going to give you the opportunity to solve all the world's problems here. All right. Which which political platform, conservative, liberal, I'm even seeing socialism versus capitalism in the news today a lot. Which one best fits with the kingdom of God? Here, here's your chance. Yeah. Solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. here's my chance. My chance is that's completely the wrong question. Yeah. And when Jesus Christ came into this, this earth, there were two big political parties. You had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Jeremy, the Pharisees were the conservative right of their day. They had their own agenda. They had their own talking points. You had the Sadducees, who were the progressive left of that day. They, too, had their own talking points and their own agenda, and they were in collusion with Rome. And both of them were trying to leverage the political process to achieve their agenda. 
And Jesus Christ would not. He refused to be part of either. Mm. He came with a completely different agenda, a completely different mindset, and it was the kingdom of God. And what he preached was not the conservative right or the progressive left. It was the gospel of the kingdom that cut through and transcended both. I put this on my uh, Facebook wall today just to create some intrigue. And here it is. Listen to this. Out of the social media feed, the heart speaks. Hmm. What's in your heart? The kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the talking points of the conservative right or the progressive left. Hmm. What I talk about in the book, of course, we, we could take hours dissecting this and breaking it apart, but the gospel of the kingdom has no points of contact with the agenda and the talking points and the motivation and the practical outworking of the conservative right and the progressive left. Hmm. And that's a strong statement, okay? When I say no points of contact, I would put it this way. There were two trees in the garden, correct? Right. And God, God said, you can eat of any tree that's in the garden, but there are two main trees, and there's only one that's off limits. So watch your diet, is what he told Adam, okay? <laughs> and we know the story, and we know the consequences. Well, here's the thing. Both the progressive left and the conservative right, regardless of the intentions, and I believe the intentions of both, for the most part, are good. I'm talking to the Christian audience now. I have friends on the conservative right, and their intentions are good, and they believe that their views map with Scripture. And I have friends on the progressive left, many of whom are really a reaction to the conservative right. They're well-intended, and their views, they believe, map with Scripture. Well, here's the thing. Both the conservative right and the progressive left, Jeremy, are eating from the same exact tree. Hmm. They're just eating from different parts of it. But it is not the tree of life. And this is what's happening when, when people are reading this book, Insurgents. You know what they're saying? This is what a lot of my mail says. They say, I had no idea. My eyes have been opened. And I now see that the whole political process and trying to sit at the seat of Caesar to try to change the world has been misguided. And deep down in my heart, I've always known there was something wrong with both parts of the aisle, but I never really understood why. So it's kind of giving language and understanding to Christians, just like when they read Pagan Christianity, the overwhelming response was, I knew something was wrong when I walk into the church building, I listen to the sermon, I throw money in the plate, I sing the songs led by the worship team, and then I go back to live my individualistic life. I always knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And your book has given me language and understanding as to what that wrong thing was. Well, the same exact thing is happening with insurgents when it comes to the political conversations that we Christians have. And we fight over and we have Facebook smackdowns every single day. And yet here is Jesus Christ who is saying, you know what? There's something higher, deeper, and beyond. And I'm not talking about going to heaven when you die, folks. I'm talking about something right here, right now. I'm ready to get baptized again. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, that's wow. fantastic. I think more people need to hear that exactly exact same thing. We're not fighting for our political platform, but for the kingdom of God. So, hey, I want, my, my podcast is the One Verse Podcast, and so one of the things I do try to do is focus on at least one passage of Scripture. Now, in passing, you have mentioned 
uh, various concepts that will help us understand various texts, such as the idea of baptism and the principalities and power and the world system. Those three ideas there are going to help a lot of people understand many passages in the Bible. But I do want to focus, if we have time, just on two verses really quick. And uh, one of these is, let's see, let's start with Luke 17, 20 and 21. It mentions the kingdom of God. And what's happening here is uh, the Pharisees have been having their encounter with Jesus. And so he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus answered and said to them, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. What does this passage teach us about the kingdom of God? And what's Jesus telling us here? Hey, that's great. Uh, What version were you reading from, by the way? This was the New King James Version. Okay, New King James. New King James is very good in some passages. It's not so good on others. And I would say that here it's not so good. Basically, you have Jesus standing in the midst of Pharisees who he had had called in John 8, children of the devil. Okay, so the Pharisees are not good in Jesus' mind. Okay, (laughs) they don't have the same offspring that he does. Their father is Satan, according to Jesus in John 8. Well, they're looking for the kingdom of God, and he turns around and says, you can't see it there or here. Guess what? The kingdom of God is, and here's the better translation, in your midst. Hmm. And what he was saying is, you're looking at the embodiment of the kingdom of God. I am the kingdom of God. I am in your midst, and wherever I am, there is the kingdom. Hmm. Whatever I do, that's the kingdom being expressed. Whatever I say, that's the kingdom speaking. I am the kingdom embodied. It is in your midst. It is within your reach. And that's what he was saying. He wasn't saying that the kingdom of God was inside the Pharisees. I mean, that that is, they're children of Satan. The kingdom is not in them. That's number one. Number two is you cannot find anywhere in the New Testament where the kingdom enters a person. What you do find is that we enter the kingdom. Okay, so Jesus was in effect saying, I embody the kingdom. And this is powerful because many people have taken that passage and read the other interpretation of it. The kingdom is within you and come out with this conclusion. Oh, yes, the kingdom of God is this privatized individualistic experience. It's in me. It's in you. And so now we basically live our lives through, you know, the political system or social activism or trying to affect laws and trying to make the world a better place. But the kingdom is really inside me. And that is not what the Lord is saying. He is saying he is the embodiment of the kingdom. And then when he rose again from the dead and then he breathed into his disciples, guess what happened? The passage moved, and now this group of people who had Christ living in them, they now embodied the kingdom also. Hmm. And so the kingdom of God, as Revelation says, he has made us corporately a kingdom. And this goes back to what God said to Israel in Exodus. I have made you a kingdom of priests. And then Peter quotes that in his letter and says, we are the royal priesthood. We are the kingdom on earth. So that's one passage you wanted to talk about. You said you had another one, I think? Yes. um, That's fantastic, by the way. And uh, I always try to point that out in my studies as well. Sometimes the translation is the traitor. It's so so often common for people to say, oh, well, you're reading the Bible wrong because here in the King James Version or the New International Version or whatever, it says this. Uh, But sometimes the translation is the one that's leading you astray. And there, that's what's happening here with my version, New King James. Uh, The kingdom of God is within you. It makes you think, oh, it's inside me. 
Right. And, and it sort of is in the sense that I'm part of the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, only as it's not an individual, privatized uh, spiritual experience. Right. It's exactly. as we exactly. embody the values and nature and character and actions and and outlook on life that we see in Jesus. The kingdom is in effect hmm. the the manifestation of God's ruling presence in and through His people together corporately. Okay. So if I if I was living in the first century and I wanted to see the kingdom of God. And I would say in the Israel, and it was 33 AD, guess where I'd go? I'd go to the city of Jerusalem, and I would meet these people, John and Peter and Andrew, and all of those people on the day of Pentecost who were living together, taking care of one another. They had forsaken everything, and they inherited Jesus Christ, his presence among them. And when I went into that group of believers, wherever they were gathering together, whatever they were doing together, I was seeing a demonstration of the kingdom of God on earth. Hmm, Fantastic. And Anyway, I talk more about that in the book and flesh it out. Okay, good. Let's deal with one more. And this passage has really struggled, uh, it's troubled me for for many, many years, and I do not understand it, but uh, the way you explain it in the book I found really helpful. So let's just also address Matthew eleven twelve, where Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, again, this is from the New King James, <laughs> uh, Assuredly, I say to you, among those, I'm sorry, eleven twelve, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. I've sometimes heard um, Christians say that we need to expand the kingdom on the world and we need to use force if necessary. And this is one of the verses that sometimes gets quoted. Is that what Jesus is saying? We can expand the kingdom with violent means and violent force? No, not physical violence, not at all. <laughs> what Jesus is talking about there is best understood by the parallel passage in Luke. There is a parallel passage to that, just as there are in many statements of Jesus in the Gospels. When you compare the different Gospels, you get a lot of light on it. But in Luke, he says, those who press into the kingdom, press into. Here he he says, take it by violence. What the Lord is speaking about is a desperate, aggressive move toward entering into the kingdom, It is one of desperation, or I would say spiritual violence. Hmm. If you remember in the Old Testament, we have a couple pictures of this. One of them is Jacob is here wrestling with an angel, and he doesn't give up. He doesn't let go. He wrestles all night. And the point there is that Jacob is being desperate and aggressive, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. All right. There is a violent, spiritually violent pushing in, pressing in to the things of the kingdom that is required to actually receive those things of the kingdom. And so many Christians, they may, you know, see something in the Lord that they desire, that they want him to bless them, him to him to bless another person, him to heal someone, whatever it may be. And after one or two tries, they give up. Or it may be overcoming an issue in their life. You know, maybe they have an addiction. Maybe they have some kind of weakness. And there is no violence, spiritual violence, to take that thing in the Lord. So what the Lord is saying is if you want to enter into the fullness of the kingdom, you must arm yourself with a violent, desperate pursuit. And we have many examples of this in the New Testament. If you remember 
there was blind Bartimaeus, and here the Son of God walks by, and Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples tell him to shut up, be quiet, you know, leave the master alone. And he raises his voice even more. <laughs> he doesn't stop. And he continues on until Jesus finally turns to him and makes him well and heals his eyesight. And then he throws away his beggar's garment and he's fully healed. Well, if he just gave up, he would not have been healed. Same thing with the Syrophoenician woman. Remember, she asked the Lord to heal her daughter, and Jesus ignores her. Hmm. <laughs> and again, you know, the disciples are like, leave the master alone. Well, and then she says again, she comes at him a second time. And, and then he just says something like, well, you know, the Son of Man has come to the lost house of Israel, not to the dogs. She doesn't give up. Yeah. She says, well, you know, the dogs eat the crumbs off the table. <laughs> and then the Lord says, all right. <laughs> and he makes her daughter well. You and I are in desperate need of the Lord and all the riches that are in the kingdom of God, every single one of us. And I'm talking about one aspect of the kingdom now. Uh, there are many other aspects. But when it comes to receiving the Lord's highest and best in what he has for the kingdom, he has what we need. But the problem is so many Christians give up. They just throw in the towel, and this is what the Lord is talking about. We press into the kingdom. It's almost like not taking no for an answer when it comes to what the Lord has offered his children, you know, victory, deliverance, etc. And so there is a violent taking of the kingdom, and that's what it's referring to. Another example of this is when Paul told the early Christians in Galatia, they were very young converts. He planted the four churches in Galatia with Barnabas, and then as they parted, they said, it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. Mm. And so there's another aspect of entering into the fullness of the kingdom. So, yeah, there's a lot more to it, but that that's just sort of a, a quick riff on what he's talking about. He's certainly not talking about using the power of the sword <laughs> to try to make converts or push your agenda. He's talking about spiritual violence. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It really helps with that verse. The great thing about the kingdom of God is— <laughs> Uh, it's on every, pretty much every page of Scripture, especially the Gospels and the New Testament, isn't it? And so uh, these sorts of understandings really, once we get a hold of them and start to understand them, really not only going to change our view of Scripture, but also how we live our life and interact with others and view what's going on in this world. Oh, yes, and much more as well. For sure, if anybody's interested in a deeper look at the kingdom and a very easy read, in a way that's super accessible, that they'll want to check out the book Insurgents. And we have a website which has samples, both audio and print. You can just get an idea of it, as well as endorsements for people like Greg Boyd and Bruxy Cavi and, and Michael Heiser and Craig Keener, et cetera. But it's insurgents.org. Okay. Insurgents.org. And yeah, there's a lot of free material they can uh, pull down from that website. Yeah, and I get your Thursday emails, and I'm recording this on Thursday. And Frank, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And I know you're busy with more interviews later on today, so I'm going to let you go. All right. Thanks so much, and Lord bless you, bro. Uh, likewise. Thanks. So that was my discussion with Frank Viola about his book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. If you're like me, hopefully you benefited greatly from that discussion found many helpful insights and ideas, which is not only going to change and revolutionize your understanding of Scripture, but more importantly, change and revolutionize your life, how you interact with others, how you view Jesus, how you view your role in the church, how you view this world, the principalities and powers, this world system, 
Maybe, like me, you even want to get baptized again so that you can die to what this world is trying to make you be, make you become, make you side with, various political sides, whatever it might be, and live the gospel of the kingdom in your life. All right, rather than the conservative right or the progressive left or socialism, capitalism, whatever the view might be, the gospel of the kingdom is over, above, and better than all of that. Right? And it fits, the gospel of the kingdom does not fit with any of those views, So, as, as Frank mentioned to us. I do encourage you to get a copy of his book if you haven't already, and then visit his site, insurgents.org. Okay, today I'm very, very excited. Uh, I've got a guest on the show who is a guy that I have been reading for about 10 years now, and I would be hard-pressed to probably find any other single author whose work has brought a more a deeper transformation in my life who has opened the scriptures to me who's opened uh, God and has revealed the beauty of Jesus to me uh this is a this is pivotal in stuff in my in my life so uh, I'm excited that I get to introduce you all to Frank Viola how are you doing sir I'm doing great, and I'm very happy to be on the show, and thanks for those all-too-kind words. I'm humbled and honored by them. <laughs> well, uh, I know a lot of my friends and listeners here have been reading your books as well, so I'm excited to uh, get to get to introduce you to, to some folks. Uh, for those who don't know, Frank and I have interacted in the real world twice. This relationship is not solely me reading his books from a distance and, and putting my comments out there, but we have sat around a table. And I have not recovered yet from those two visits with you, Jonathan. <laughs> I have not yet recovered. <laughs> so Pagan Christianity was the book that started the journey for me. I was at a point where I was uh, burned out on institutional church, and I knew that there must be something else richer to experience. And I didn't know what that was, and I didn't have language to describe it, and so I was just kind of stuck in a frustrated position. I came upon this book called Pagan Christianity. I read it in a couple of days, and it was like, whoa! It gave language to all these kinds of things that I was wrestling with. And then over a course of uh, years, I began to read Frank's other books, uh, Reimagining Church, which is a, a partner component piece to the Pagan Christianity, from uh, Eternity to Here, which is a just a mind altering perspective on God and a number of his other works. And throughout all of them, Frank, it seems to me that you're you're wrestling with like, it's like we don't understand how great Christ is. It's, it's like there's mm -hmm. something about Christ that you're constantly pushing forth. What's that journey been like for you? Where, where has this come from? Good question. I think it dates back to when I was in my early 20s. I'd come to the Lord when I was 16 and got involved with just about every tribe in the Christian faith, various denominations, parachurch organizations, movements, etc. And there came a point where I discovered that there was deep within me a cry that said, essentially, there's got to be more than this. There has to be more than what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing. And that set me on an odyssey where I began to look far and wide to people who knew who knew the Lord better than I do and who really knew him in a living experience. So that has been a lifetime pursuit of mine. And I have found that Jesus Christ 
is effectively the only thing that doesn't wear out. Everything <laughs> else in the Christian world wears out eventually, whether it's a method, a technique, a teaching, a doctrine, you name it, the, the <laughs> list is long. And, you know, there is a reality in Christ. There is a reality of knowing him and seeing him and having the veil pulled back. Once we get a glimpse of his greatness, we are essentially wrecked and ruined for anything else. And so what it tends to do is we begin to look at everything else with a completely different lens. And we we often see that there's so much in Christianity today that is shallow at best, or it just stops at the frontal lobe, you know, and doesn't go beyond the cranium, and it's all heady and intellectual. Either that or it's highly emotional, and emotion wears off, and now we're running for the next thing that we relate to Jesus Christ. So so my work has really been to try to clear away all the brush so that we can see the Lord anew and afresh and really get to know him personally. And to me, that's that's the name of the game. Like Paul said near the end of his life, Here's a man who knew Jesus Christ better than most everyone walking during his time. And he says in Philippians that I may know him. So something happened to him. He was the man who penned Colossians, which is just a stunning (laughs) revelation of Jesus Christ, of which we can never exhaust, no matter how many times we read that book, preach on it, teach on it, expound it, explore it. He really is unfathomable in his riches, as Paul says in Ephesians. So so that really is the heart of it. And I think it's difficult, Jonathan, because a lot of us, we have filters. So when you talk about Jesus, the response quickly is, oh, yeah, well, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. I got the T-shirt. Let's move on to other things. But if you really have seen the Christ of Colossians, for example, or the Christ of Ephesians, there is nothing else. <laughs> the rest of life is a pursuit of knowing him, exploring him, and learning how to live by his indwelling life. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I like how Paul, I think, I don't remember where, but, he, but Paul says, you know, there's only a handful of people basically who knew Christ. You guys, the apostles. Oh, and me. Um, it, <laughs> right. it always gives me a little giggle. Jesus, a theography would be, I think, kind of your, like your big, big work that would maybe be focused on Jesus in a biographical sense. When I look at your high watermarks, I would sort of say we've got pagan Christianity slash reimagining church mm-hmm. from eternity to here, Jesus mm-hmm. a theography. And mm-hmm. now I would say your new book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. Do you feel mm-hmm. I've missed any kind of high points out? Or, or are they? Are all your children your favorites? Uh, no, all of them are not. All of them are not. No, I think you listed... Uh, the main ones. I, I would throw in there two more. One is the book that came out before Jesus of Theography. It's called Jesus Manifesto. It's a shorter book that Leonard Sweet and I wrote together, but we basically take dead aim at everything that has eclipsed the person of Jesus Christ in the Christian faith, things that Christians chase after, whether it's leadership principles, the power of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders, evangelism, apologetics. These are all it's, okay? Evangelism is an it. Apologetics is an it. Signs and wonders is an it. But we don't need an it. We need a him. And when God's people chase those things, even though they're related to Christ, they are not Christ himself. Mm. And so we talk about something called JDD, Jesus Deficit Disorder. And so (laughs) what the book tries to do is 
expose what that is. It really is in the drinking water of the Christian faith, whether it's the progressive left or the conservative right. We have it in spades. And we're not really aware of it until someone peels back the layers and shows us who Jesus Christ really is in a way that we've never seen nor experienced nor imagined. And then we begin to say, oh, that's right. I was chasing a thing about Christ, not Christ himself. Yeah. So that's what that book is about. And it was interesting because we had endorsements from the entire spectrum of the Christian faith, all the way from the Archbishop of Canterbury to some of the Reformed guys, to some of the leading Arminian leaders, on through you know Baptists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and on and on. It was singing a song that many Christians felt needed to be sung, didn't even realize of the need until they looked at the book and read it. And so that was the precursor to Jesus of Theography, which you mentioned. And the other book I would throw in there is one called God's Favorite Place on Earth. Oh, yeah. Which was my first—thank you. It was my hybrid where I mixed fiction with nonfiction into something I call biblical narrative. And in this book, Lazarus, he's an old man. He's getting ready to die, and he tells the story of when Jesus came to his hometown— the little town of Bethany, and the things that took place there. And so it kind of reads like a movie, and I had uh, one of the leading—I would say he is the leading New Testament scholar as far as first century history is concerned, Craig Keener, Dr. Craig Keener. He's my historical advisor and made sure that every part of that story was accurate and faithful to both the New Testament and church history and first century history. So that was a compelling book. For many readers, it brings many of the gospel stories of Mary and Martha, Lazarus, etc., to life. Yeah, I, I love that one as well. And uh, I felt, uh, I think it was the one that came after that was uh, The Day I Met Jesus had a similar kind of yes. biblical narrative approach and it yes. opened up a bunch of things. I, I had to go through this really quite painful deconstruction process uh, that I know a lot of other folks, certainly folks in my generation especially, seem to have had a real wrestle with stuff and have had to tear down a lot of what we thought about the church, thought about God, in order to fall back in love with Christ. Mm, uh, and that's exactly yes. what, what happened to me as I as I mm. left traditional understanding of church or common modern understanding of church, shall we say, and kind of journeyed out into the wilderness. Oh, surprise. Who's out in the wilderness? God doing just fine, <laughs> waiting, <laughs> waiting for all of us. And mm. uh, out there, I fell head over heels in love with mm. with the Lord Jesus Christ. My mm. my wife was so confused because when we got married, she was kind of a bit more out in front spiritually and she was expecting to to get this great spiritual husband who would be on his <laughs> knees every morning crying out to his to God for his his wife and family and and that was not me and she was felt kind of like she'd been tricked. And for the first couple of years, mm. I was like, well, whatever, I'm not going to fake it. I like I, I believe in God, but I, you know, I would say I love Jesus. But but when I fell in love with Jesus, man, everything paled in comparison. And mm. and to be honest, my wife wasn't totally she didn't really believe it at first. She was kind of like, we'll wait mm. and see how, how it plays out. <laughs> <laughs> but but I would wake up in the middle of the night for, just from being deeply asleep, and I would wake up with the praises of the Lord on my lips, mm. and uh, my my heart was just bursting with with love for the Lord. Uh, which eventually God was like, "Hey, listen, if you can prize me out here, 
you can prize me anywhere. And mm. uh, so Frank's latest book is, as I mentioned before, Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. Five seconds. What's your elevator pitch? What is this book? <laughs> My elevator pitch, I guess, would simply be that most of us have never heard the gospel of the kingdom, and yet it is the most powerful message in the entire New Testament, and it has the power in and of itself, once we hear it in its totality, to titanically and radically revolutionize, and I would use this word, radicalize us to Jesus Christ. Just like people who join terrorist organizations are radicalized to their false cause, this is what the gospel of the kingdom does. And it's what happened in the first century, and there is an insurgence happening today that's doing that very thing. So that would be my elevator pitch. <laughs> very good. I'm going to read two statements that you put into the, into the first section of this book, because it segues nicely here from, from this whole thing about Christ and— uh, I think in in many ways, what I've as I've come away reading this one, I feel like this is kind of like the this is what's been brewing in you all along, and and I, I I'm excited for other people to to digest this one. So two things that you've written here: the antidote to spiritual boredom, which plagues many Christians, including leaders, is to receive a fresh awakening of the beauty of Christ. And then a little later, you wrote, an unveiling of Christ to our hearts then is the necessary prerequisite to a genuine surrender to the Lord Jesus. And that mm. is the starting point of the insurgents. So we, so we begin this process of radicalization by being, would you say, you know, radicalized, capturing a radical vision of the beauty of Christ himself. Yeah, that's the starting point. And it's also what maintains that utter and complete abandonment and devotion. You know, the reason why those 12 apostles and those five to eight women forsook all is because their eyes had been opened to see the absolute beauty, majesty, glory of Jesus Christ. This is so vital, and it's why I start the book out with trying to present Christ in such a way that readers will just be captivated by him particularly his beauty and splendor, is because today in the Christian world, the favorite tool of the preacher to try to get people to submit to Jesus, to give their life to Jesus, to obey Jesus, the favorite tool in their hand is guilt. Hmm. And as I put it in one book, the average preacher today needs a travel agent to handle all the guilt trips <laughs> he puts on God's people. The problem with guilt is it's like a rubber band. It doesn't last very long. Hmm. As a motivator, it's horrible. And not only that, but it breeds its own disease. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from guilt and condemnation. And so that does not lead us to the Lord, not in any lasting sense. What really leads us to him is to have that unveiling to see exactly who this Lord of ours is. And that's what I try to do in the beginning of the book. I take the reader through a number of the stories in the Gospels by putting the reader there. It, it's as if it's happening to you. You know, you are the Samaritan woman at the well. You are the woman caught in adultery. You're Peter who kept failing and failing and failing and committed the ultimate sin of all sins, the sin that eclipses whatever any of us have done, and that is the denial of his own Lord. 
not in front of a, a great leader who's putting a lot of pressure on him, but in front of a maid, you know, and not once, twice, but three times. And so if Peter could really blow it, and I mean blow it big, and yet he becomes the chief of all apostles, then boy, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. So so I present the Lord in his beauty in the beginning of the book, and that sets the stage for now that we have seen him, now that he has enraptured our hearts, what now is that titanic, earth-shaking, powerful, unbelievable gospel of the kingdom? But that seems to me to be the missing point, is preachers, and I'm around them all the time and I speak with them, It's it really comes down to God is holy, you're not, try harder. And that seems to be the main message. That's the message of legalism, and that's one of the Gospels that I talk about. The Gospel of legalism is, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you have to maintain it by works. And this puts you on this treadmill of constant performance. The response to that, which is the other gospel, is the gospel of libertinism, and that's where so many Christians have been burned out by trying to be good Christians and failing the Lord and being put under a pile of guilt and condemnation and and all sorts of legalism. Now they latch on to grace, and so the message becomes, because you're under grace, it doesn't really matter how you live. And so that's the other counterfeit gospel, and then breaking through both is the gospel of the kingdom, which I seek to uncork in the book. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. This uh, the, the kind of hyper grace thing is definitely something that uh, I that some of my own leaders and pastors have been really wrestling with and have had a real concern about. And it's been an interesting point of dialogue uh, between us at some times because I think some of my leadership have been concerned that essentially because me and many of my peers are a certain age that we must be going in for that message. And what I keep coming back to is, look, I I love the Lord. I don't want to grieve the Lord's heart. Mm-hmm. Just because I could say, like, yeah, sure, shall we sin more so that grace may abound more? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a new problem. Mm, but right. it's, it's like I don't want to. I don't want to grieve the heart of my lover in the same way I don't want to grieve my wife's heart. So somewhere in here, as we're capturing a vision of Christ, there there's two words that's just jumping out of my mind when I think of the the disciples and the the other women who came with them, as you mentioned, you know, forsaking all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, which to me is perhaps not the most popular sermon title in modern Christianity, but but we see there's this detachment. There's something about the first believers. There's something about the early church uh, where there's a a, a disconnection from the powers surrounding them. They're they're coming to live under a new covenant. One of the more real fascinating parts of the book for me was the discussion on principalities and powers. Mm. Uh, we know that when we think about you know these mountains of influence in the world, um, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, entertainment, uh, education, uh, wealth, business, society, politics, all of these things, it's easy to be like, oh yeah. Th- things that Christians need to be careful about. But I don't think I had really gone to the extent in my own thinking of of really assigning demonic entities to those things. Uh, and, and your argument there is that far from simply being neutral structures that exist, these are actually very systematically designed things to distract us. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. And ensnare us and ensnare us. And this is all about the discussion of the world system, which I talk a lot about in the book. And I think that Christians today are are not really familiar. I'm speaking in generalities here, of course, but there's an unclarity on what the world system is. John tells us, love not the world, nor the things in the world. Now, he's not talking about the earth, and he's not talking about the people in the world. He's talking about a system. Paul talks about it when he says that Satan is the god of this world. Jesus identified Satan as being the prince of this world. There is a system on the earth, and I trace the origin of it going back to Genesis 4, when Cain left the presence of God and he built what we call fallen human civilization. And it is a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. It was a counterfeit to the Garden of Eden, and it's a counterfeit to the kingdom of God today. And so the intricacies of how the world system works are very, very powerful. And one of the things that happens when a person becomes radicalized to Jesus Christ is they break the loyalty oath to the world system. And uh, this is what baptism was in the first century. It was a literal watery grave where the individual had broken all their ties to the world system. They no longer pledged their allegiance to the flags of this world. They became, in every way, a citizen of a new kingdom, of a new creation, of a new civilization, as it were. This has really been lost to us. The discussion on the principalities and powers in the book, I think, is fascinating, and I give all my documentation there, looking at scholars and what they've uncovered. But I pieced it all together, and it was just stunning to me. I feel like that is uh, probably a huge course correction for a lot of us, I would say in the West especially. Ever since I read that, uh, I've been just chewing over it for the last few weeks. And man, every time I'm tempted to engage in some Twitter rage war uh, or anything <laughs> relating to politics or religion or education or anything, ringing now in my head is, it's not flesh and blood, man. It's not flesh and blood. And again, mm. I've I've known that, but it's it's like a, a deeper understanding for me. Yeah, there's more going on that me than meets the eye. Which again, I've I would have always said, yeah, of course I know that. It's definitely been a, a shift in in my understanding of the world around me, especially when we think about like the world of media and the world of politics. And it's like it's like these two elephants just raging at one another, right? And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, it's because it like literally probably is two demonic powers raging against one another. Uh, fascinating. Okay, wow, now I can leave that over there and keep my eyes on Christ uh, and have, have a different set of focuses and priorities. I like that you brought that up because I want to riff on that just a little bit. What I do in the book, too, is I explain the tentacles that belong to the world system. And as you mentioned the political system of our day, I don't care what country you're in, it doesn't matter, Canada or the United States or you name it. But basically, the political system is and has always been part of the world system. And Jesus Christ is not head of that system. It has the fingerprints of God's enemy on it. This is the reason why when many good, upstanding people who have integrity get involved in the political system, virtually every single one of them, without exception, is corrupted at some level, in some way. Either great or small, there is some element of corruption. And this is because that system is not under the headship of Christ. Okay, now, 
when you go back to the first century, you find that there was a political system operating during that time. And you had, in effect, the Sadducees on the one hand, who were the liberals and the moderates of that day, and you had the Pharisees on the other, who were the conservatives of that day. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. And so you have the Sadducees who practiced appeasement toward the Roman occupying presence in Israel, and they were all about protecting their political party. Then you had the Pharisees who were the scrupulous taking the moral high ground uh, <laughs> observers of the Hebrew law, which basically in their interpretation of it reached way beyond what the law said. And they added this massive addenda of oral tradition, interpretations, explanations, human made rules, obligations, etc. And so in effect, they both were leveraging political power. Mm. And then Jesus Christ comes along and he doesn't side with either the Sadducees. They become irate with him. He doesn't side with the Pharisees. They are apoplectic about him. And he is coming from a totally different perspective. His whole viewpoint is from the heavenly realm. His whole message is the kingdom of God. And Jonathan, the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom did not fit the progressive left back in the first century, nor the conservative right, and neither does it do so today. One of the flaws, and I go into this in the book, is that Christian people, that's all they really know, and they can't seem to think past progressive left political right. And so the talking points, whenever they speak on political or social issues, all it does is it echoes what they're hearing from those political vantage points. And Jesus Christ is coming from a totally different place, just like he always has and just like he does today. It is a mistake for God's people to sit at Caesar's table and leverage the power of the world system, a la political power, to try to achieve heavenly aims. Mm. When you peel back the onion of all of the political bickering and vitriol on either side of the aisle— they really are using the same methodology and they're really speaking from the same vantage point. They're just cutting the moral line in a different place. Mm, yeah, right. It's like, it's like a sacred cow, right? For, especially for many Christians. I... Absolutely. I would go a step further and I would say that if, if you are someone who has a body of evangelical Christians who are wedded to the conservative right, and you bring in a different vantage point, you are definitely going to have people who are going to become offended and don't want to hear what you have to say. On the other hand, if you have a group of followers who are wedded to the progressive left, and you bring in another vantage point, you're going to have the same exact reaction because, brother, both the progressive left and the conservative right, and I'm speaking contemporaneously here, I'm speaking in contemporary terms and generalities, but both are eating from the same tree. Mm. And there is another tree but it's completely different. This is why when Jesus Christ, if you ever see his dialogue with Pharisees and Sadducees, and the same thing with Paul of Tarsus, you ever see his dialogue, he's asked a question, and he so often answers in a way that nobody would even imagine. It, it almost <laughs> seems like he's answering a different question. That's right? it. That's it. That's because he is eating from a different tree. He is laser locked into the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom. And he has that perspective dominating. And just like a hot knife through butter, 
that message of the gospel of the kingdom cuts through both the progressive left and the conservative right. And I would really admonish or encourage rather anybody who deep down inside looks at all the vitriol and the bickering back and forth and deep down says, you know what? There has to be something other than this. There's got to be a third way of looking <laughs> at all of this, you know, down to the way we discuss. But not even that. I'm talking about the actual perspective we have. And I've written the book not only for so many other Christians who are seeking, uh, you know, there must be more than this. But also, I think it's really helping people find a different way when it comes to this whole political issue and how it's divided so many of the Lord's people. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's good stuff. Everybody, I recommend you read it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the Insurgents has begun. Don't miss it.